Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy. Today we'll be talking about the mystery of death from various philosophical and theological perspectives. Now, before we get started, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and select notifications. And of course, share this content with your friends. So, Dr. Smith, why don't you get us started? Everyone's aware of death. So, <laughs> naturally, the mm -hmm. uh, ancient Greek philosophers must have had something to say about it, no? Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, when I was uh, going through undergraduate, I don't know if you experienced this uh, or not, there was kind of a little bit of a kind of a a little bit of a boom, I guess you might say, of uh, people talking about death and dying. I remember there being some philosophy classes about that. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that was kind of relatively good uh, move because it's one of those topics that you know, obviously, you know, you say, "Hey, let's get together and have a conversation about death." Right? Uh, <laughs> like a lot of people would be like, "No, thanks," you know. Um, but you know, in fact, you know, we know we're going to die, yeah. which is an interesting fact about the human experience about the human condition really right uh -huh. that death is something you know we know it's out there and it's gonna happen and you know the older you get the more funerals you go to and you know you see like this is this is a reality we come to an end right yeah it's really right. almost it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that i think psychologically right that you know at some point just speaking from a, maybe a physical point of view you come to a full stop Right. You know, like it's just, I mean, if I, if you were a strict materialist, right, your conception would be that you go and go and then boom, there's nothing like it's just yeah, right. done. It's not like you're in a void even or asleep or anything like that. It's just not right. And it's hard, of course, for us to imagine that because in imagining it, we're still there. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but anyways, it's, a, it's, it's an important fact. I think it conditions a lot of things about us. You think about the human life cycle. We're aware of there being a human life cycle, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that it comes to an end. Um, and so, you know, it has been um, a topic of serious philosophical reflection, uh, and, you know, starting the ancient Greeks and through a lot of different philosophers. You know, Socrates, uh, in, in the early Socratic dialogues, we get a really interesting uh, claim by Socrates that says, actually, that philosophy is preparation for death, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes some of my undergraduate uh, uh, students say, yes, it is. <laughs> right? uh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, yeah, this really is preparing me for die. But, you know, it, and of course, his interlocutor, Socrates' interlocutor is asking what he means by that. And what he has to say, right, is, you know, of course, Socrates is very grounded in the idea that philosophy is a way of life, Right. You know, the philosopher, you become a, a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, and that affects who and what you are and, and the way you, you act. Certainly it did Socrates' own life, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Socrates lived a very unusual life and remarkable to his peers. Like his peers knew him and thought of him as a remarkable man, right? Um, and, uh, you know, some of them loved him and some of them hated him, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but obviously, uh, since he was put to death by Athens. But, you know, he, what he's saying there is that really philosophy 
detaches us from temporal goods, I would say, right? Or from a strong um, dependence upon them. Uh, now, he actually, in some texts, I think, takes this fairly, fairly, puts this fairly strongly in the sense that he, you know, thinks of uh, happiness as virtue and virtue as knowledge, right? And so the you can, you know, the Stoics and the Cynics pick up on this idea from Socrates that really, you know, you can be bereft of all temporal goods and happy, right? Uh, I mean, that's the kind of Socratic view and, and that the philosopher wisdom teaches you that, right? That you can be happy with almost nothing, right? That Now, I think Aristotle has a more moderate view, right, uh, as far mm -hmm. as that goes. But um, uh, certainly that comes across in Socrates. And the idea is that really we are um, immortal souls, or as he says, uh, you know, in the, um, I think it's the Phaedo, where he says, you know, we should at least believe that we are, uh, which is an interesting caveat. Right, it's, it's better for us to, to believe and act as if this is true. Right, um, maybe you know, maybe he's not a hundred percent sure, and you know those early dialogues, Socrates, but we should at least live this way. And what that has to do with is recognizing that since we're immortal souls, that's that's who and what we are. You know, the body is just, you know, it's it's not completely unimportant, but it's a thing to be ruled over. Right. Uh -huh and and it's an instrument and the goods that attach to it are temporary and fading right whereas the goods of the soul are not temporary and fading right they are uh, immortal right and so when he's talking about this idea of preparation for death you know death for a platonist is not all is not i mean you know i've never i'm not aware of any platonist advocating suicide or anything crazy like that um, they do seem to have the view that, you know, you have a, something to do in this life uh, that's important, but that really death is, is sort of a, a release from the temporal yeah. world of change and pain and right. other things into I a more natural state for the soul. Right? The way Which, I would characterize the Platonist view, right, is, is that um, I would say that they, they think that we really ought not to exist in the body, but in okay. fact, we do. And, sure. and they try to understand like how it comes to be, right? How sure. it is that a thing that shouldn't exist in the body does exist in the body. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, you know, you look at some of the different um, myths that Plato appealed to, right? right? Sure. In his dialogues. Uh -huh. And he's talking about, you know, there's the one about the, the unruly steed. Mm -hmm. where they're circling around we really belong in heaven right following the mm -hmm. trains of the gods and um and we're circling around it this is the eternal form the circle right so we're going mm -hmm. around following the god and um and then there's this unruly aspect of our souls or something right <laughs> right in the form of the the one steed that wants to pull off on a tangent mm -hmm. And because of this, right, they lose their feathers, the, the steeds, and, and eventually they crash down to the earth. And, and that's, that's how we end up in the material body. Right. But Plato probably doesn't really believe this legend is literal, right? But Sure. But, I mean, it's a way of thinking about this, that something's gone wrong, and mm -hmm. the project in this life is to kind of 
change the way our soul relates to the body that is in, to the material mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And that it's prepared to be liberated from it. That's right. That's right. Right. That's last, mm -hmm. last, I, I think uh, many Platonists might might suggest that there's a kind of reincarnation. That right. Yeah. Occur, mm -hmm. uh, if you don't succeed at that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way of uh, putting it. You know, live so as to to die, so as to be liberated. Right. Uh, and so that includes right a detachment from worldly things. Uh, a detachment from you know the pleasures of the body, uh, a detachment from you know uh, temporal glory, um, those sorts of things, and you know certainly um, certainly there's some things there that are that seem correct, right? Uh, huh. Insofar as you know, from a philosophical perspective, there is um, a sense that you know you're you're mortifying the flesh, right? Um, this is one way to put it. It sounds very New Testament, but <laughs> you're mortifying, right? Certain desires, right? Um, in such a way that you're you're preparing to kind of go through this liberation of death and ultimately mm -hmm. be freed and return home, right? You know, I like the way Plotinus talks about it. Some he talks about returning to the fatherland. You know, yeah, uh, uh, it's very it's fantastic imagery. Um, so, I mean, living your life as open to an eternal perspective right as open to a perspective that you will continue on right that you will continue forever and that the way you live in this life affects right what's going to happen afterwards right right, right. I mean, those those pieces seem to me uh laudable what do, what do you think about that uh yeah i agree i think i mean i think at this stage in um in the development of thought, right? People, right. I think people have reached a, um, a, a level of real insight, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I would want to push further, I, you know, obviously, I'm, in the end, I think the, uh, the Christian understanding of things is going to be the, is going to be the best solution to this problem of death. But, mm -hmm. but I mean, I want to credit the ancients for, for what they, for what they thought and one of the things mm -hmm. i mean there there of course there are lots of different views about what happens after this life in the ancient world long before there were there was sure. uh, any sort of sophisticated greek philosophy right mm -hmm. but um but i i think there's some real insights um it seems to me there are real insights for the ancient greeks uh in terms of this sort of the way in which they the way in which they think of um, what the purpose of this life mm -hmm. is really, right? Yeah. That there's something, this life is, um, the condition we're in now is a temporary condition. Whatever, whatever else you might say, right? Everyone yeah. recognizes that, that this condition is temporary. So the question is, do I live as if this life is futile? It has no meaning right mm -hmm. there's no purpose to it that was one tendency that we find in the ancient world and you see that reflected for example in ecclesiastes right if, mm -hmm. if we live in a world without god mm -hmm. then life is meaningless mm -hmm. it's only god that makes life really meaningful mm -hmm. um and then of course we have you know we also have views like uh, in ancient egypt where their best case scenario right for life after death 
mm-hmm. is that you end up in exactly the same situation that you're in right now, except it won't be temporary anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they recognize they recognize the temporariness of life, of this life. All right. And they do, I think, I think they do see um, something about the way we live it as connected to what happens afterwards. We pass, after this life, we pass through these various scrutinies, right? Mm-hmm. For the ancient Egyptians. And, um, and if we manage to pass them, a question which, the answer to that question is determined largely by the way we conducted ourselves in okay. this life, right? Mm-hmm. Then we get to the other side and we get everything back Okay. But no longer with the risk of losing it. But that's the best case scenario, right? Right. Sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's uh yeah, that's um that's interesting. You know, one of uh you wonder how that would make you I guess, you know, that would make you think, well, I need to to live en- well enough, right? Uh-huh. Get back the goods of this uh, the goods of this life. But it does seem to me to fall short, right? Of a I mean, the Platonist seems better here in this sense that, uh, or Socrates, that it's, it's a really different kind of existence. Yeah, right. right? Like there's right. a new, you're, tra- you're pivoting to a higher form of yourself, uh, a better form of yourself, a better form of existence. Yeah. Right? Um, but do you think, where, where do you think the, where do you think the um, point of intersection is and the point of departure is between this, Platonist view and say what you might find in in Hinduism or Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you think really, about that? Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, I think that um, the reincarnation part, right? So a lot of Platonists uh-huh. do have that reincarnation view, right? That if you don't live well, you'll be reincarnated. Um, uh, let's see here. I think it's been a little bit since I've been really reading that stuff, but um, you know, life is suffering in the hindu and buddhist tradition it's a thing to be overcome and gotten out of and you can see some convergence there parallelism with uh plato there is some interesting work that's been done that that suggests at least the possibility of some um interaction between some Uh and and maybe early indian thought that's pretty thin right now but it is interesting but in any case uh you know, I think the real difference, though, is that Plato is not a monist, yeah. and and the, the you know the Hindus really are monist, and so really your individuality is reabsorbed into yeah, right, right, right. You know, this this yeah. uh, this ultimate reality uh, that is the one. Whereas I think for Platonists, it's you know the souls really are individual, um, yeah, and uh, and so whatever platonic heaven is like, right? Um, you're self-conscious, self-aware, right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's your individuality and sense of distinction, right? Uh-huh. Not false. And it, that's not something to be overcome. Whereas I think for him- I think that's a major, major difference. Sure, yeah, between, I mean, I think- between, But so, I mean, it's funny because like on the surface, if you're just, if you're just sort of listening to, mm-hmm. you know, oh, um, you live this life in such a way so you don't have to get recycled in reincarnation mm-hmm. again. And you just sort of detach from this world and all this. Um, that sounds very similar, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they sound, that sounds a lot like Hinduism and Buddhism. Sure. But it's not. And it's not because of mm-hmm. 
the focus on um, how we understand self-distinction. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. So in Hinduism and Buddhism, that's a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Self-distinction is, is a, a sort of aberration of being. That's right, yeah. But not so for Platonism. That's right. And it's interesting, you know, one of the Western thinkers who uh, kind of brought together Buddhism and German idealism, strange, right? Uh -huh. Schopenhauer, right? And Schopenhauer very clearly has this, you know, animus against individuality. Individuality is a deception, right? What we really are is all just, you know, will. <laughs> you know, this one undifferentiated will, uh, mm -hmm. which is not the Hindu version exactly, of course. But I think actually, Rich, that the, divi the metaphysical division between pluralist and monist is uh -huh. actually something we probably in metaphysics allied over too quickly. Like, you know, when we do our metaphysics classes and things like that, I think, because, you know, monism is such a powerful metaphysical system uh -huh. historically and culturally. I mean, yeah, you think yeah. about the, the right. world, you know, and like half the world actually. Yeah. Right. To. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, you put China and uh, India together I mean, like, that's a lot of monists, yeah, <laughs> right? right? You know, right. and so, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that we opted for pluralism over monism as a cult, as a Western, as a civilization, right, mm -hmm. um, is, was, I think, important um, and a real gain. And it ties into the ways you think about death, right? So, you know, when, when you know, you could think about death just as, as this dissolution of the illusion of, of individuality, right? Uh, and that that's a great thing, you know, or yeah. think about it as a transference to a higher kind of um, uh, existence, you know, like Socrates does. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, Rich, would be the slogan you hear lots of times now from modern atheists, uh, this is this is your only life, enjoy it, right? This yeah. is the life you get, enjoy it. And, you know, it's where, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to have, to sit, to have a different view than that. Right. You could be a Hindu or you could be Socrates. Right. right, right and right. Socrates can say, you know, well, actually <laughs> what's interesting is Socrates says, even if it's not true that we continue on, it's better to live as if that were the, the truth. quality of life that you live will be a better quality. That's right. That's life, right. right. And that's, that's, you know, William James, you know, pragmatic pragmatist argument. Yeah. Right. right. As well is that he's like, I'm not a hundred percent sure that free will and immortality are true, but I think it's better for me to live as if it were. Right. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and I think that's, that would be interesting. An interesting argument to have in existential terms, right? Like, why is it that it's better to live as if the world, as if you're, you were going to have an afterlife? Why does the atheist think, no, it's better not to think about that? I mean, certainly Nietzsche, right? You know, one of his criticisms of Christianity and Platonism is, is the belief in the life after death, right? He yeah. thinks that that right. actually poisons us so uh -huh. that we don't truly engage in this life yeah, we hold back, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, from really exercising the will to power because we have this sort of fantasy life about uh, a permanent sense of being uh, that we're going to sort of ascend to. One of the criticisms that's made in the Nietzschean vein, right, against mm. Christians, um, and you'll hear you'll hear this criticism made today, is that uh, the belief in the afterlife actually prevents us from taking any meaningful action 
to make the world we're living in now a better place, right? Mm, mm, because great. the idea is that um, we'll just kind of, this life doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter if there's mm -hmm. if there are bad things in this world. We just accept that that's the case. And um, and and so, you know, we'll just die and, and get over it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, obviously, anybody who knows anything about Christianity knows that's a complete perversion of, Sure. Uh, of our moral view, right? But mm -hmm. but that is a, in the Nietzschean vein. That's kind of the criticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's kind of the more um, serious and moralistic sounding, right? Uh -huh. uh, kind of criticism. Whereas you know, you could also have what I was kind of proposing there was kind of the more hedonistic one, right? Which is, you know, this belief in the afterlife is keeping you from doing things that you you should do, right? So one thing you might say is. As, as belief in the afterlife has declined, the willingness of people to do the right thing, even when it includes suffering, has decreased. What do you think about yes. that? Yes, I, I absolutely think that's right. I, 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 see, no, I see no question. Yeah. Right? I like, mean, like, like sticking to your word, keeping your vows, you know, well, there's an exception to every rule now, right? Right, yeah. And um, I mean, if you just think about it's the death of the idea of the absolute moral norm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That makes sense, right? Sure, um, sure. And you see this even among professing Christians the idea mm -hmm. that life under certain conditions um, is, is unlivable. Um, within the confines of, you know, the moral ideals of Christianity. Right, and right, they were, right. Right, so they're just ideals. They're not, mm. they're not principles. Sure, sure. That we language is dangerous. When we, see, when we see that language, right, what's dangerous about it is, I mean, there are different ways you could mean it, I guess. Mm -hmm. But one way in which I definitely, I mean, keep in mind, as a teacher, right, as somebody mm. who has been teaching for a long time, at different academic levels. When people hear the word ideal or use the word ideal, sure, right, sure. Yeah. they often think of an unattainable goal, mm -hmm. sort of like, it would be nice if, wouldn't it be great? Right. And we'll right. try to approximate it, but sure. yeah. we know we can't ever reach it. Mm -hmm. Which is a concept that, from a moral perspective, right, tends to uh, presuppose that lots of compromise will happen in, mm. in the practical sphere. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, so it's in interesting. Splendor, yeah. Right? In yeah. Very Top of Splendor, yeah. Pope John Paul II talks about martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yeah. he says that some, sometimes uh, that's, the only, that's the only response a Christian can give um, while doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So basically, mm -hmm. the in other words, in order to live, sometimes the moral principles mm -hmm. of that, that Christians are that Christians live by. Right. The, mm -hmm. the absolute moral norms demand mm -hmm. that we do not do X or that we do sure. Y. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. No matter what the consequence to us. Right. And that will mean we will die. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. And obviously that wouldn't make any sense, right? Outside of the context of an afterlife, right? Yeah. You know, the idea that- like, I don't think Aristotle, I, I'm not sure. I don't think Aristotle would agree mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with that view. I think he would say that there are times where you have to, that the virtuous man, there are times where he has to hazard his life, right? Aristotle would say that, I think, uh -huh. for sure, because of war and yeah. the duties of a citizen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think martyrdom would be a different question. <laughs> uh -huh. know? He might have told Socrates, you should have just run. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> like, right. you know, I mean, there are times, I mean, even when I'm reading it, was, the, was that the Credo, I think, is that right? Uh -huh. um, you know, I would think, maybe you should have just left, <laughs> you know. But he has his argument that's really interesting about the, the laws of the city and, and, and who he is as an Athenian. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think that that's true. But even I think, you know, less than martyrdom, just say the, the willingness to put up with uh, an unhappy situation in life. Yeah, you right. Know? Um, to endure it. Well, it's, it is, see, I, I see that as a form of martyrdom, right? It's not, sure. it's not red martyrdom sure. like by, by blood, but it's martyrdom. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of white martyrdom, right? Where right. you give up the only life that, that the world thinks you have. That's right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you give it up for the sake of for the sake of the absolute moral norms that you value that's right yeah yeah that's key um so you know the uh another so we've focused here so far really on thinking about afterlife and the way that living in this life gets you to a better state right a higher yeah. form of being that's represented in the platonist tradition that we would say that in a certain way in a certain respect that's runs parallel to the Christian view. Uh -huh. um, uh, you know, a somewhat different take on it, I think you get in the uh, in the Stoics. And um, as you know, I'm very interested in the Stoics and I'm always trying to increase my understanding of them. One of the reasons is that, you know, they I think that they have had an unappreciated impact on early Christianity. Yeah. I think scholars have done, gone on good ways of, of improving that situation, right? That, uh -huh recognizing that actually stoicism did have a huge impact in early Christianity. Um, but I think, you know, there had been before that maybe a tendency to just focus on the Neoplatonic sort of tradition. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then also just, you know, it's interesting philosophers in their own right and interesting in the sense that they were really one of the most popular forms of philosophy. We, I think oftentimes until recently, I would say, you know, Stoics were tended to have a pretty bad reputation seemed to be pretty unattractive, but really, you know, the truth in the ancient world, they were more popular than really any of the forms of, of philosophy that have kind of other forms of ancient philosophy that have come down to us. So you really have to think about them, especially in Rome, as kind of a popular movement, uh, which I think is is really interesting. And you start looking at their morality, especially their sexual morality, very um, different than than a lot of their interlocutors, yeah. uh, and their willingness to do things like um, recover uh, uh, abandoned infants, right? Which is very strange. Yeah, right. thing to Christians, do in the world. Christians, of course, definitely did that, right? Right. In, right. in the primitive church, um, but the Stoics did it too, and yeah, uh, it, yeah so they're, honest, just, they're interesting in that way, right? Right. Right. In fact, I think you can say right that if, if you don't think of Stoicism so much as a properly religious perspective, yeah, and just think of it as a sort of ethical paradigm sure. um then i think you can actually say right that many of the early christians uh 
and Jews of that time were actually Stoics. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that, right, Paul, that they think um, that Paul was? I don't think there's some scholarship out there. Do you think that Paul was a Stoic, a Jewish Stoic? Um, I'm not 100% sure that I would say that. I, I think okay. he definitely had strong sympathies. Mm. I would say, though, that, that um, I, I would say that uh, that um, Cyril of Alexandria is a Stoic. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. Right? Yeah. I mean, his he emphasizes, for example, he emphasizes um, apatheia, mm -hmm. right, which is, which is their sort of, um, it's uh, literally what it means is being without passion, mm -hmm. right? And of course, there were different versions of this, right? There are, not all Stoics have the same exact view, right? But for some, it was pretty radical. And I, mm -hmm. you know, there's debate about what uh, Cyril's position was on this. Mm -hmm. But when I read Cyril, I kind of think it's the harsher view. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the, the softer view, right, of Apatheia, one which I think is taken up, like, pretty much completely into Christianity, mm -hmm. is the view that, is the view that um, the passions cannot be permitted to govern mm -hmm. the person. Right, right. But instead, the person has to govern his passions by reason. The re that, that basically reason is to rule in the person uh, and, um, and the passions are to be sort of tamed and shaped by what's rational. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, I would yeah. say Augustine holds that view. Sure. Right? Sure. Thomas certainly holds that view. Mm -hmm. But other Stoics, you know, they, they held the view that... Um, that basically passion is bad mm. that 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 passion is just um is in, intrinsically problematic and yeah. subhuman yeah i mean i think part of the, the issue there for them is that for one thing they see virtue as happiness right uh -huh. and without so they have that stronger socratic view rather than the aristotelian view so like that, you know, you could cut your, like your arms being cut off, but you're virtuous, you're fine, right? Yeah. No real harm has been done to you. Um, you know, um, you know, and, and you know, from a certain point of view, uh, you could kind of like, I mean, there, there are, there are aspects of Christian spirituality that, you know, kind of slightly push in that direction. Oh you yeah. Know? Like, you know, you, you know, can, so you can find that. I mean, that's a pretty radical way to think, right? By uh, cutting off my arm, but I'm fine because. I'm being virtuous, like maybe I'm a soldier or, or whatever, you know. Um, Paul uses that imagery, right? Paul sure. does use that imagery. Yeah. And um, and in fact, he's, you know, he says, uh, there's that famous line where he says, I've learned, um, I've learned in whatever condition I find myself in life, therewith to be, there, therewith to be content. That's right. Um, and uh, and that, that's a very stoic kind of sentiment, sure. right? Yeah, it really is. Or, you know, if I live, uh, if I live, I live for Christ. If I die, uh, mm -hmm. I die for Christ, right? I mean, I, whether I live or die is of no sure. account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's cool, really, right? <laughs> or Ignatius of Antioch, who's like, yeah, I mean, don't save me. Don't try to interfere. I want to get that's eaten right. by the lions. I want to be eaten by the lions, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, so that's, that's pretty radical, right? Uh, stance, both uh, Christian or Stoic. And I think with the Stoics, right? So that's going to consist in, right, the rule of reason, right? Uh-huh. Um, the rule uh, really of uh, like for the Greek Stoics of, of logos, right? Um, 
you know, we're going to use a different term in Latin, right, for the Roman Stoics, but it really is that. And that's because that's a little bit, this is where the Stoics are different, right? That's a little bit of God, right, basically, right? There's a little bit of, of that logos in us, right, mm-hmm. is the most divine, right, uh, part of us. And that's the part that flows back to sort of kind of cosmic logos in, in the uh, when we die, right? Um, but the passions, right, they interfere with the rule of logos, right? Yeah, right. So it's not, it's not just sort of some sort of like um, weird antipathy to emotions. It's, you know, a recognition that, that they're a problem for <laughs> the rule of reason, right? Yeah, right. You know, uh, and, uh, and, you know, so, but anyways, I think that- But I think, well, see, that's, that's a place though where Christianity does have a point of departure, right? Sure. Um, and, and, and that's because of the way in which it conceptualizes the relationship between soul and body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Christianity, there's a resurrection of the body, right? And right. There were early heretics who didn't accept that view interesting yeah uh right so we can say for example um you know the docetists mm. uh the uh the manichaeans right? right they didn't accept the view that the body is in fact properly part of the person they held a strongly dualistic metaphysic where mm-hmm. body and body and soul are are separate yeah right that, they, this, that, that makes the stoics really interesting though right because they seem to be materialist Right, they seem to basically have the view that the soul is a is a substance, right? Uh-huh. And they a substance that's like fire is what they'll say, you know, as the best image, right? And also that logos, right? This is interesting though because of the, some of the language in the New Testament too, right? Yeah, yeah. that the the uh, that logos is um, is fire, right? Uh-huh. And so one of the images, you know, when they talk about the the world being consumed by fire, what it really means the world being consumed by logos, right? Uh-huh. Uh, right. That it, that, uh, which is really fascinating, you know, a picture of it. Um, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, there. So it's, but it is interesting to think about the fact that they have this view, but they're materialists. I can't, I can't really fathom the idea of the soul being material and being soul. Like, it's hard for me to conceptualize. Yeah, I sort of can, because I, yeah. I think. If you go back to the ancient world, right, you can see that for, well, go back to ancient polytheism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for many of the ancient polytheists, the gods yeah. had, they were part of the cosmos, right? I mean, they weren't, yeah. they weren't outside of it. That's good and so um, what you had was different sort of modes of being within the cosmos. Mm-hmm. One of them we we call matter and the other we mm-hmm. call we call spirit mm-hmm. but um but they're really just spirit is just a rarefied form of of being this so to wrap your head around it right um i think you might look at contemporary um paranormal researchers right okay the people who go around with like electronic instruments and try to find ghosts yeah so if, if you think of um, the soul as a as a spiritual being that is not like it's not material in the way that other material in the way that say light is material or sure. electromagnetic energy is material uh-huh. um, but electromagnetic energy is not material the way my cup is right sure. the way yeah my, that's true the way my body is um, so the way they would have conceptualized 
in the ancient world, I think the way many of them would have conceptualized the way in which the gods exist mm-hmm. uh, would be would be more akin to mm-hmm. the physical forces or electromagnetic energy. Or yeah, something. that's interesting. And, you know, that's actually kind of that sort of way of thinking about physical physical reality especially when you get down to like quantum mechanics and things like that, uh, you know, it's very uh, hip on the new age side of things. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, new age kind of spirituality is very often bring in those energies. Right. Yeah, and, right. and, you know, words like that, um, that are kind of pseudoscientific, I guess, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So, but Christianity, Christianity is starting from a different perspective in, in right. this way. Right. Mm-hmm. That, we worship a God who isn't part of the cosmos. Key point, key point, yeah. Right, and so um, no matter what we might say about anything else, about the <laughs> about the pagan gods, we could grant yeah. that the pagan gods are real entities. Yeah. And maybe they exist within the frame of the cosmos. Maybe the angels mm. do. Maybe there's something sort of quasi-material about the angels. That was a debate in the Middle Ages, right? Where, sure. Do the angels have any sort of body or not? Mm-hmm. Um. But we can't debate whether God exists in that way. That's right. Yeah, and, and that's of course what makes the the that's what makes the incarnation such a such yeah, a radical so, <laughs> kind of claim. Right. So strange. Yeah. So and that's it, a very important. Uh, I remember one of my f- uh, professors, uh, Monsignor Sokolowski, uh, when I was at Catholic University of America, used to call that the Christian distinction. Right, is that God is not not God is not the highest part of the world. God right. is entirely outside the world, and I think that does you know sort of get us um, get us you know t- towards thinking about sort of that does reshape and reframe right the way that we're gonna as Christians approach death, um, say vis-a-vis the Stoics. Right, one of the main ways it seems to me that the Stoics approach it, which tied into their materialism but also their providentialism is their view is that they use it as an exercise right that is they want you to think about death right um you know remember that you will die right so epictetus has in his handbook he's got this little phrase and you can actually find this in catholic churches and Uh stuff too uh but it's a it's a you know it's it's contextualized differently but memento mori right that remember that you're going to die right and that all of this is going to go away and of course the things that are in the epictetus handbook i really recommend that if you're interested in kind of just diving into the stoics it's the kind of thing you could read over a week very easily just 10 minutes 15 minutes in the morning or something like that and it's really meant to be i kind of think devotional literature is about the closest like it's it's meant to be material for meditation right yeah and reflection Uh right so that you say it you read it you say it to yourself and that's going to help you get sort of lined properly right so that you'll do your duty and, and live out logos in the right way but it's it's this idea that that thinking about death helps us to live well in this life, right? So, uh, from a stoic perspective, right? So that they're, what they're worried about is the passions attaching you to things that, t- that draw you away from your duty and the rule of logos within yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what they want you to think about when they're worrying they think about death. You, you're going to die, your wife is going to die, all of your glories are going to die, Right. All like you see what I'm saying? Like all of the like when you're like, say you're this is especially Rome, right? Because in Rome, you know, the the Romans loved glory. Right. Uh, And they're saying they're trying to say to the to these to their fellow Romans, don't love glory 
because you're going to die and you will not have that gift, that benefit, right? So don't worry about that side of it, right? Just worry about what's permanent and that's the logos within you. Yeah, what do you think right. about that, Rich? Yeah, so um, again, I think that, I mean, I think that Christianity would, would largely adopt that view um, as far as the conduct of my personal life goes, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think they would say we shouldn't be concerned about the affairs of men. Sure. Um, and I don't think the, Sto the Stoics really thought that either, right? Yeah, they really kind of thought about it sort of as what is your place? Yeah. Right? Right. So if you're now, this is what's weird. And I think I actually I mean, I disagree with some people about this, but like, I think in the New Testament, right, you get a lot of the similar view where, you know, you can be a Christian and you can be a slave. You can be a Christian uh -huh. and you can be anybody. And that's the same with the Stoics. You can be an emperor and a good Stoic, or you could be a slave and a good Stoic. Right, right. Um, so what they would say is, if you're the emperor, do the things that are you know, the do your duties as an emperor, right? You know, uh, if you're a slave, do your duties as a slave, right? Um, so they would be concerned with the affairs of man insofar as you I think it concerns your place, right? Your duty, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I, I also think they, the, I mean, certainly Christians, but also probably Stoics, right? Mm. I mean, given the look at look at how they the fact that they rescued infants from sure. yeah. from abandonment right. that's a good point suggests yeah. that they had a sense that duty included um, obligations of individuals toward individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, even you know, people the, we didn't know. Yeah, the phrase cosmopolis right uh -huh. comes from the stoics right now we it's been yeah, debased into this word cosmopolitan which has all sorts of weird connotations but in the, its original form cosmopolis right is the cosmic city right uh -huh. that we're all part of one cosmic uh empire of logos right yeah right that, uh, which is a powerful reason, sort of fellowship among human right. beings right yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah um well, so uh, I know we're going long here, but I want to, if we can, maybe move to one last figure here and then contrast it some with Christianity. All the views that we've looked at see, see either looking at death and appreciating, sort of looking at death and thinking about death as helpful, or like, so the Stoics, right, in terms of detachment, memento mori, right? Or we've looked at views where you're sort of transcending into a higher state right uh -huh. um but the uh, accompanied with the belief that that's helpful to you now right to have that that belief a, a, a kind of a really different take but there's some parallels uh and this is jumping way ahead so um but is to look at uh, heidegger right uh, you know martin heidegger is you know controversial very hard to understand uh in a lot of ways but, you know, one area where you can sort of hone in on, on Heidegger is really to try to get a sense of what he's doing and being in time, famously difficult work, okay? But one thing you can definitely recognize, and this is, you know, the common uh, interpretation, is that what he comes up with in the end is the view that being is time and time is being, right? So that temporality is reality, right? Transition finitude right that is being and that's reflected in our own being right so uh -huh. heidegger's view right is that that the human person is where being shows itself right and and what we find when we really look at the human condition is finitude and temporality right 
but that, um, you know, because of that problem we have with not being able to imagine our non-existence, right? We have a tendency to fall away from that, to reject the reality of our being, which is temporality and finitude, right? And that's when we fall into inauthenticity, okay? Um, does that make sense what I'm saying? I mean, I know you don't agree with that view, but is that- Yeah, right. Okay, it, yeah. are you tracking me? Okay, so um, what we do then is we extrapolate the present into an eternal present, right? Uh, that we can occupy at some point. The problem with this, right, is it ends up denying us our the reality, right, of being human, which is temporality and finitude. And that causes us to fall into inauthenticity, right? So that we have this kind of fake way of being in the world, right? Mm -hmm. That, that in, in line with Nietzsche, keeps us from really engaging, keeps us from really uh, drawing on being keeps us from really um, uh, being able to relate to other people in uh, in a in a way that's includes solidarity, right? Um, the solution, right, as this great phrase is uh, um, lucid resolution in the face of death, right? Uh -huh. The solution is to accept your finitude, right? To embrace the reality that death is the end, right? Um, and that in embracing that reality, right, you recover your being, you recover your authenticity, right? And that way you stop living this kind of fake life, right? Um, and can really embrace your being, right? It's moment to moment, right? Um, I think it's an interesting view, right? Um, one of the things that's interesting about it it is, so what would it be like if we were immortal physically? You know, like if like this part just went yeah. on and on and on and on and on and on, like, it, like we are in this world. Well, one thing I think you would become incredibly sad, right? Uh, <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> like, because disasters are gonna happen and you're just gonna see accumulation of disasters over time, right? Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I guess. Do you mean that we that we just don't get old and die, or do that's you mean right? That we don't. We don't. Yeah, we don't get old and die. Yeah, but we're still we're still sort of you know prone to vice and things like that. But you could, but you could still somebody. like get killed. Could you? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're saying that because if you couldn't get killed, right, then obviously there wouldn't be very many disasters. There would be setbacks. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But they wouldn't have the same kind of effect, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, I think the um, other the other thing though that would be weird is our ability to think about our lives as a story. I think would be kind of undermined a little bit. Yeah, right? there's, there's a, a there's a sense in which like the idea that there's an end of the story uh -huh. helps us to think about it as a narrative. And, and you have an I, idea of how yeah. long it's possible for that story to be dragged on. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, you don't know for sure. Some stories are very short, right? Mm -hmm. But, and some of them are fairly long, but none of them are longer than 120 years. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. And so it kind of frames our lives in a way, right? Uh -huh. That we can kind of see a process of mature maturation, right? Expectations and, of where we should be at some stage and the ability right. to gauge ourselves right or moral right. development or, mm -hmm. um yeah and so this is that timeline yeah right yeah and so that 
and you can also see decline, right? You can sort of see, oh, like, you know, like this, this part of my, my body is not quite what it was, you know, and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and ultimately, you know, in a weird sort of way, this reminds me a little bit of that Aristotelian statement, right? That, I mean, this is being kind of generous to Heidegger, but that, um, you know, you, you call no man happy until, you know, he's dead, right? That we don't really know whether someone's happy until they've completed the course is the way I would like to say it. And so that you can look so that the man who's, you know, in his deathbed, right? Uh, if he's, you know, in such a situation, looks back on his life and says, well done. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And of course, Christians, of course, you know, we have this concept, right? Because mm. Except that that declaration is given by God. That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking as I was saying it, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yeah. Right? You know, uh, but for Aristotle, I think it's important that, I mean, I think it's important that other men praise you. Um, but he doesn't have an idea, of course, God praising you. Um, and, but also that sort of self, you know, you know, yes, I have, I have done well, right? Um, yeah. There's something kind of noble about that. There's also something a little bit elitist and arrogant about it too. Um, but that's, I think that's kind of uh, how Aristotle uh, rolls. Uh, but anyways, like, what do you think about some of those ideas as far as, so I've kind of given a generous interpretation to Heidegger, uh, but, you know, obviously there's some critical things you could say about it. Yeah, too. right. Well, I mean, where I agree is that um, recognition of recognition of finitude is morally significant mm -hmm. right um but i don't agree that that necessarily means recognition of an end to our objective um to the objective existence of the self mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um so for example in christianity right we have this idea that the life we're in now is the life we have. Uh, this is the life in which we're morally responsible mm -hmm. um, for the conduct on which we're going to be judged by God in the end. Right. And there's only so much time. Right. Sure. Recognition of finitude here is also, um, I think, synonymous really with recognition of, of our created nature. Mm, right mm -hmm. recognition of the fact that um i don't have my being in and through and of myself right, right. i have it uh i have it as given by god mm -hmm. and so there's always there's always this giver of being to whom i'm responsible right and on the terms that he defines mm -hmm. not those that i define for myself gotcha um so I don't know. I think there's more than one way to, to, to sort of be aware of finitude, right? Yeah. To be honest about finitude. I got you. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, what do you think of the, the criticism pushed, uh, say, pushed back here? It's uh, that, you know, what you're doing there, right, um, is extrapolating um, the present and your desire for continued being into um god right i mean heidegger's you know i'm sure you've heard the onto theological critique right yeah. and, and you know i mean that's his that's his view that you know 
Yeah, that that sounds good. What you're saying, maybe uh, that you can you can appreciate finitude and affirm um, the um, uh, continuance of man, but that's only within a framework in which you've already distorted uh, being and created a god. I guess my response to that would be, I mean, leaving aside issues of miracles and all this kind of stuff that suggest to me some evidence that there really is such an entity. Okay. Um, but leave, leaving that issue aside, let's say you don't grant any sort of evidence, right? Mm. Um, I guess I might say the Judeo-Christian tradition, I think, recognizes the sort of intellectual improbability of this concept. Um, historically, right, this is a really actually odd view of reality when you think about this, this God beyond nature that, mm -hmm. that uh, it, it is necessary being mm -hmm. and conscious and willing. Mm -hmm. And it thinks and wills that which is other than itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, that's a huge philosophical conundrum. And mm -hmm. we, we recognize, right, that, that philosophically, even if we can make arguments for creation, right, mm -hmm. um, that's not a concept that people actually did argue for uh, right. until, until people to whom the idea was revealed. That's right, yeah. Encountered them, mm -hmm. right? So even if in principle... Uh, you could you could you could sort of lay out the philosophical bricks here, right? Uh, it's really hard. Sure, it, it's it's not the kind of so it, the, the Heideggerian critique, right? Would it seems to presuppose that the Judeo-Christian view of God uh, is obvious somehow mm. that it's culturally obvious mm. and in fact it's not so you're saying he's kind of anomalous he's kind of he's kind of uh, he's underappreciating right the um um i guess the uniqueness the strangeness the radical you know character of uh christian theism yeah if this was just a reflexive thing that human beings do then, then everybody would do it mm -hmm. cross-culturally right but now it's true that what you do have is people grasping at the sense of there being more than what we see, sure. right? That yeah. you absolutely see cross-culturally, mm -hmm. but the particular kind of answer that we give in the Judeo-Christian tradition, mm -hmm. that's that's unique. Yeah, gotcha, I gotcha. What do you think about, how would you respond to the the claim of inauthentic, inauthenticity versus authenticity? You know, that, that somehow when we affirm the immortal about ourselves that we become fake. Um, you know, and live and live in a way that's undermined. Like we're kind of undermining yeah, uh, ourselves. That, that critique only that critique only stands if, in fact, it isn't true that mm. there's this that there's this immortal. Engine, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's I mean, it's a it's an important point. <laughs> if, if, is it, yeah, I agree. If it's not true, mm. if this is an illusion, if I'm wrong about all this, mm -hmm. then the kind of life that I'm living is is different from the life that belongs to me as an organism to live i, I guess mm -hmm. unless you argue by contrast right and this takes us back to that sort of pragmatic point mm -hmm. that 
somehow human beings evolved in such a way, right, that um, that we we have a complex social moral structure that requires us to mm-hmm. that requires us to forego personal interests um, for the sake of for the sake of highly complex abstract notions of 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 sort of social good right right and if that's the case then even there i would argue um my authentic being as a human being mm-hmm. seems to require that that i i labor under the illusion of the afterlife interesting does it's that make a, any sense to you sure sure yeah i mean there you know i mean so socrates you know says something similar right with the idea that maybe even if this is not true it's better right yeah. that i live this way um the i think you know to really uh, you know one other person who says the uh, something similar is kant interesting enough right yeah. and his view of morality is that you know you don't act for happiness but he but he recognizes that that for human agents we need to believe that happiness and moral duty coincide Right, and that in order to to have that belief make sense, there has to be an afterlife in which it can coincide, uh-huh. and a God who ensures that they coincide. Right, so you know, God and the afterlife are are postulates of practical reason for Kant. Um, it's interesting. I think to really give a a robust view, right? I would want to. I would. It would be great to sort of, and I think we could do. I think we can do do this. Flesh out an anthropology. Uh-huh. In which we we can recognize that affirming the existence of God involves the affirmation of our own human being, right? Where we see the affirmation of God as a sort of um, teleological outcome of our own flourishing. Do, do you see what I'm trying to trying to connect it teleologically? Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So I think for Christianity, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as I said before, recognizing that you're that you're a contingent being, mm-hmm. and that um, and that God Himself is necessary being upon which you depend for your existence, right? Right. Then it's part of the very definition of humanity to um, to to because we're rational, right? Yeah. To recognize this fact, to recognize that relationship. And yeah. therefore, to conduct ourselves, uh, to to conduct ourselves as responsible to it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives here. Do you want to kind of give us a, a last word, kind of from a Christian perspective? Well, from a Christian point of view, there's some weird things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I think we need to we need to recognize as a, a sharp distinction between anything else, um, including sort of a Stoic view, right? Sure. And that would be that in Christianity, there's the idea of the resurrection of the body. Yeah, big deal. Um, That's a huge deal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very, like, there's, it's an open question, really, exactly what the resurrection of the body is like, right? People have different speculative ideas. Can we have halos? Yeah. Or or what do they call what is it what are they called? Is it or orioles or what there's a strange term in the in the supplement to the Summa. Do you know yeah. that's where he's I can't remember. Yeah, Ariola. I, I don't yeah. remember. So yeah. it's uh I think it's what it is. The the um 
that you see this depicted in some of the iconography when you see like the, the full body it's like a halo but it's the full body full thing body cool. you just glow right yeah yeah i like that um but <laughs> but the um so there's this idea of resurrection of the body and we you don't really know um anything about it except that it transcends the body in this glorified form would transcend somehow all those sort of negative things about the body in this life. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than sort of being, rather than materiality making us subject to corruption and decay and limitation, mm -hmm. um, instead the world having been sort of taken up into fire, right? Yeah. consumed by fire uh the world is um we're elevated to the point where we become our existence is now one of mastery over the material world um by contrast of course there's the resurrection of the damned which is another condition entirely yeah um maybe harder for us to to imagine right because because we we might describe that as a condition of perpetual decay. Mm -hmm. um, you picture the, you know, the in the story of the picture of Dorian Gray, right? The uh, mm -hmm. the the picture bears the marks of the guy's debauchery, right? Right, right. And it's just it just decays and decays and decays. And I don't know. I I, yeah. I can't really wrap my head really That's around. That's interesting. Yeah, I've kind of I've always. I've kind of conceptualized it as, uh, or imagined it as uh, a body that is capable of being burned but not consumed. Yeah, sort it's of. kind of kind of drastic, <laughs> right? You know, pretty awful image, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah. sort of an inversion, an inversion, say of the of the reality of Christ in the Eucharist, right? Where mm. he can be eaten, but he's not really like he, he's not he's not you know, ever eaten but never consumed. Right, sure. Is the sure. Um, is is the phrase? Yeah, and uh, yeah. So anyway, and, and who knows? I mean, it's weird. Sure. Right. It's weird, but we have this idea, and this is the important part that it's not just the mind, right? It's not just right. it's That's not key. just men's. It's not That's just key. noose. Yeah. But but the entire soma, right. the entire organism. Mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. ultimately is taken up into into a shared divine life yeah and um that is a truly bizarre idea i'm going to admit that right yeah, yeah. Um, but it makes sense it makes sense anthropo anthropologically in a way right it does in terms of our basic longings right i'm sure right yeah yeah and you but one of the things that's bizarre about it right is you get the idea that uh, i love the imagery in in uh revelations where you know the the heavenly city comes down, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it and it's there amongst us, and God is with us, right? Uh, in this new heavens and new earth. I mean, I think Rich, this is one one sort of uh, maybe weak points, maybe too strong a criticism, but you know, because I think of our tendency to focus on the beatific vision, which makes, of course, good sense, you know, to to think about. 
um, we tend to maybe not spend enough time on the new heavens, and the new earth, right? Yeah, and, 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 and the fact of the resurrection, because I mean, that's really what we're going for, right? Is the kingdom of the fully realized kingdom of God, right? In, in which we will still have the beatific vision, right? But but that but the final status, right, is really the the kingdom. Yeah, I, I, that, that's I, I completely agree with that. But I think one of the reasons why this happens is that we have to. We have to do theology within a language framework. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the language framework with which we have to work is some philosophical system. Right. Um, and so far, all of our philosophical systems have had some sort of limitation as far sure. as really reconciling mm -hmm. this relationship between matter and spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, everything that we've worked with, right? has had some kind of limitation here. And so I don't think we really have yet sort of a, a metaphysical way of getting past this problem. The problem is if we think of human beings as rational animals, right? Mm -hmm. It's our rationality that defines us specifically, right? As, as a specific, that's the specific difference mm -hmm. is our rationality. And so what's the, What's the fulfillment of the rational being? Well, it's um, it's knowing, mm -hmm. and in fact, knowing the highest truth, right, is mm -hmm. the most fulfilling thing there could be. Hence, the beatific vision. Mm -hmm. And then we have this: the problem is, how do we imagine anything more perfect in terms of our own fulfillment than that? Mm -hmm. Where does the body fit in? Does the body add something that's better than the mind, mm -hmm. uh, or that that's there's more being than the mind itself, right? Yeah, I mean, this it's good. This this spills into all sorts of interesting issues, right? In ethics and in anthropology, uh, about you know whether or not contemplation is really the is really the only end uh -huh. or the ultimate end, right? Yeah, like you you can read. Um, there's different interpretations of the Nicomachean ethics on this very point, right? Mm. Where, you know, some, the, the, some will kind of platonic readers of Aristotle, right. Uh, will tend to instrumentalize all of the other goods except for contemplation. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Right. Um, and you can get a little bit of this feel in Augustine sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are places where he talks about you use every other good, Right, but only enjoy God. Right, that claim. Well, uh -huh. I think there's ways to deal with that, but the um, uh, um, or you know the other interpretation of Aristotle, right, which is that you know contemplation is the ultimate good, it's the best good, but it's not the only good, right? Uh -huh. And in fact, it's very rare and episodic and blah blah blah, right? Um, with all those qualifications, but yeah, it spills into lots of uh, of different uh, issues about human beings and human fulfillment and human actualization uh you know what is it um like you're saying like what does the kingdom and the resurrection of the body add right to um the human actualization that is that is that correct that's why you're yeah you're right the question right and we could go around and around about that that would be its sure. own podcast maybe but um <laughs> that's right and we've got pretty long we need to wrap up here but yeah I, but i but yeah. it's it's I think the reason we have the reason we don't think about it as much as we should and maybe give it short shrift is just because we don't know how to talk about about why 
what it is about it that's so essential. But I think the mm -hmm. simplest answer to this question is that God, that God seeks to reconcile the totality of his creation to himself. Mm -hmm. And that means both matter and spirit. Mm -hmm. It means the totality of the human organism mm -hmm. because the human organism is both material and spiritual. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so he, he doesn't choose to leave behind the dimension yeah, of yeah. matter. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's an interesting way of doing it. I like that. That's a good, uh, uh, you've thought about this before, Rich. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Says Matt Tractor your theologian. That's a good, that's a good answer. I like that one. Well, uh, we should probably wrap up there uh, with, uh, with that answer. Uh, your last thought, comment, you want to wrap us up, Rich? Um, no, I think, uh, I, I, well, no, my last thought is, is just um, to remind us, you know, in the, in, um, in the rule of St. Benedict, right, Benedict actually also talks about uh, keeping death ever before your eyes. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think um, th that's, always, that's always influenced me. I'm, I'm always, it's good to remember that from time to time, right? To just be aware that, to be aware that we are in fact accountable. Uh, okay, so that's um, that's enough for today. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to uh, give us a thumbs up, like, and subscribe, and uh, share our content. It helps us a lot, and um, we really appreciate it.